welcome to Arbitral Insights, a podcast series brought to you by our international arbitration practice lawyers here at Reed Smith. I'm Peter Rosher, Global Head of Reed Smith's international arbitration practice. I hope you enjoy the industry commentary, insights and anecdotes we share with you in the course of this series, wherever in the world you are. If you have any questions about any of the topics discussed, please do contact our speakers. And with that, let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our latest Reed Smith podcast. And I'm delighted to welcome today Lubna Shuja. Hello, Lubna. Hi. Lubna is someone I've been really looking forward to having a podcast conversation with for a long time because she inspires me. She inspires so many people of South Asian heritage. It'll be obvious to those of you who don't already know or know of Lubna why after you've listened to this podcast. Now, let me tell you the first thing that, I, that fills me with immense pride. Next month in October, in about three weeks time, Lubna is due to become the first Asian, the first Muslim, and only the seventh female president of the Law Society of England and Wales. And that really is a big deal. She qualified as a solicitor in 1992. She's currently the sole practitioner at Legal Swan Solicitors in Birmingham, the great city of Birmingham, a firm which she set up in 2007. And she's a dispute resolution practitioner by background. She specializes currently in professional discipline and regulation and holds a number of disciplinary body roles in that regard. Lubna is also a mediator and uh, has conducted several mediations. Prior to setting up her firm in, in Birmingham, Lubna worked in West Yorkshire, the great county of Yorkshire, of course, uh, specializing in litigation and personal injury work. She really is uh, an inspirational lady. And like I said, I'm really, really delighted to be speaking to you, Lubna. And, you know, I'm just going to ask you to start us off, Lubna, as to why you chose law. Uh, or how did law choose you, I should say, whatever the right one is? Hi, thank you, Gautam. Can I say, first of all, thank you very much for inviting me uh, to come and join you on this podcast. Uh, it's a real honour to be able to chat to you and to, to some of your listeners, hopefully. So in terms of, of, I think, actually, you make a good point. I think law did choose me. I don't think I did choose law. When I was at school, law wasn't ever on my radar it wasn't something that I thought about doing. It wasn't a career that I thought was suitable for somebody like me. I was from a working class background. I'd gone to comprehensive school. I, I didn't know any lawyers. I'd never met any lawyers. I didn't really watch legal dramas on television or anything like that. And back then, you know, nowadays we talk about mentors all the time. And, you know, who's your mentor? Back then, we didn't have mentors. There was no such thing as as mentors. In fact, there was no such thing as diversity, really. It wasn't even a, a, a word uh, yeah. back then. I'm showing my age now. So actually, <laughs> when, when I was at school, I was going to do an English degree. That, that's what I, I had in mind. And it's interesting because the reason why I was going to do that was I had a couple of cousins who were journalists working at the BBC. And I thought they, they were very glamorous. And I thought that was a great job to do, you know, journalists at the BBC. And it's coming back to, you know, who you see and where you think you can go because you look at what other people have done. So I actually got a place to do an English degree at university. And when I 
got my A-level grades, I actually did uh, better in my A-levels than my teachers had predicted. And as a result of that, a friend of mine suggested, why don't you do law? That will probably open a lot more options for you. Have a go. Why don't you try it? See if you enjoy it. And that's exactly what I did. Managed to get myself a place onto a law degree. Um, managed to get a grant from my local authority. In those days, we used to be able to apply for grants which would pay for your fees and some of your maintenance. And uh, that's where the journey began, really, for me. As soon as I started studying law, I mean, I was just fascinated by it. I, I loved this idea of of cases and, and, and how they set what would happen and precedence. And it was just amazing. I really, really enjoyed it. So I think law did choose me. <laughs> Luckily, it did. It's this solicitor's uh, profession's great privilege that it did choose you. But, you know, one of the things Linda, that you said there that I really immediately took me back because I qualified just a year after you in 93. And you're so right. In those days, the environment was so different. We didn't have all these support networks we have now, which happily we have now. Concepts of diversity, be it gender or ethnic or other types of diversity, just weren't on the radar. And we didn't have mentors and inspirations. And luckily, now we have a much better system of mentoring, sponsorship, support, whatever you want to call it. And thank goodness we do, because it's much needed, especially for people like you and me who come from a minority. So when law chose you, which you've kindly clarified, tell us a little bit more about who your inspirations and mentors were to encourage you and who ultimately have been with you all the way through this expedition that you've now been on from practice to, and I'll come to your law society role a bit later on. You know, Gautam, that's a really interesting question because I get asked this regularly. And honestly, I didn't really have any mentors. I think I've been very fortunate throughout my journey because along the way, I have worked with incredible people who have supported me. They have encouraged me. Um, they have you know, opened doors for me wherever they could. And I think it's thanks to them that I've managed to kind of get to where I am. There's no single person that I can say has, has been alongside me throughout my whole journey. You know, we have support of our friends and family. We have support of our colleagues. It's with those allies that we managed to succeed and we managed to get to where we are. As you said, there were no such thing as mentors back then. I mean, a, a really interesting statistic that I wasn't aware of when I joined the profession, and I'm sure you probably weren't aware of it either when you came into the profession. Back in 1990, when I was starting my articles, as they were back then, now called a training contract, there were only 709 solicitors who were from a black, mm. Asian or minority ethnic background. 709. Wow. I didn't know that. Wow. No. And I, and I didn't know that at the time, to be quite frank with mm. you. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't consciously mm. look around and think to myself, there's nobody that looks like me. I, I just got on with the job. You know, I, I, I wanted to finish my articles. I wanted to qualify. I wanted to be a good solicitor. 
and I just got on with it. You know, it was it wasn't it wasn't something that I sat and thought, oh, there aren't other people around like me. I mean, now the statistics are very very different. Now almost eighteen percent of the profession is from a black. Asian or minority ethnic background, and I think that's absolutely fantastic. It, it, it really is. And again, you said you know there are much more support networks available now, which I think is 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 wonderful. I didn't have that when I was coming to the profession, so you know there were things that I struggled with when I when I joined, because I mean I'm I'm, I'm from a Muslim background. I don't drink alcohol. I hadn't gone in bars or pubs or anything like that. But as soon as I started working, you know, all the networking, all the client hospitality, all tended to revolve around alcohol and events where alcohol was available. And, and I was completely out of my comfort zone. That wasn't somewhere that I felt comfortable. And, and actually, and this may be part of there weren't many people that looked like me, I, I was trying really hard to fit in. And not to stand out, because at that time you don't want to stand out. You you want to you want to conform. You want to be you want to be accepted. You want to be respected as a, as a as a good solicitor, and, and and that's what I found myself doing back then. I I didn't want to talk about my culture. I didn't want to talk about my background. I didn't want to talk about you know my unique experiences as an Asian female Muslim. You know, I just wanted to fit in with everybody else and, and not be different. Whereas now we absolutely and quite properly celebrate diversity because those unique experiences are what make you different. They are, the, you know, they are your USP. They are what you bring to the party, so to speak. And they're really, really valuable. Yeah. You know, well, I mean, that was very impactful, Lubna, because we've just had... Recently, as you know, we've just finished South Asian Heritage Month, and that's a wonderful celebration, as you know, of all aspects of South Asian heritage people. And we had a podcast series as part of that process. And I reflected as we did the last one about some of the things I would tell young, aspiring, up and coming lawyers from a South Asian heritage background. And I said, amongst other things, celebrate who you are, celebrate your religion your festivals, your languages, what you do, uh, who you are, because it's part of you. And what you said was so, it really hit me because when I was, and like you, I was also an article clerk because I did articles of clerkship as well. Um, I was the only person in my intake in a city firm who looked like me. Mm. And you do conform. You feel a need to conform because it's what's expected. And, you know, I've been asked over the years, have you got any regrets in the course of your career? And I have said to people, not being truer to myself when I was my younger self. And uh, so what you said was so impactful. I mean, just in terms of other hurdles and obstacles that you've had to get over. I mean, you mentioned the fact that you are female, you're Muslim. That, of course, as you rightly said, has a number of beliefs that are very important to you. In the course of your career, what have been the most paramount obstacles or hurdles that you've had to deal with to be the successful person you are today? So I have one that will probably make you smile. It wasn't, it wasn't 
funny at the time, but I think <laughs> now when I look back, it, it, it really it really does put a bit of a smile on my face. When I first started working, women, or particularly where I was working at the time, were not allowed to wear trousers, which is absolutely <laughs> ridiculous when you think about it now. It, I mean, it, you, it, it's almost hilarious. Women were not allowed to wear trousers? Are you joking? But way back then, yeah. it wasn't unusual. If you went to court, women did mm. not wear trouser suits. And, you know, a lot of female solicitors were in businesses, firms that did not want you to wear trousers, did not allow you to wear trousers. So that was a, 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 a an, I mean, I suppose it wasn't an issue for me because what, obviously what you end up doing is, is, is dressing with very, very long skirts. But when I think back to it, you know, in a way that was discriminating against me as a female, as a Muslim, as a Pakistani solicitor. And I was working in Bradford at the time, which is a very, very traditional community. And again, it meant I, I couldn't bring my authentic self to work. You know, I, I mean, the bane of my life was trying to find suits with long skirts. That in itself wasn't easy because, you know, I wanted to wear a suit. I wanted to look smart. It's going back to the conforming back to, you know, what does a solicitor look like? But I managed to persuade the firm. It took a few years, but I managed to persuade them that um, that really was not an appropriate rule and they needed to move with the times, quite frankly. And uh, they did agree to it eventually. So that, that, was a, that, was a, that was a challenge at the time. And again, you see, you have senior people in a firm <laughs> that make a decision like, women are not going to wear trousers in our firm. And as a newly qualified junior solicitor, you know, you, you, you're trying to challenge that, but you're trying to do it without getting people's backs up, quite frankly. And that, yeah. and that, was, that was a challenge. But, you know, we, we got there. We got there. Yeah. <laughs> I know. It's interesting. You know, yeah, you mentioned that thing about trousers. I remember distinctly because I trained at a city firm and my boss was also the head of litigation. I won't name him. He's now retired, actually. He's still a very good friend of mine. I remember one of the associates in our group, female associates, wore trousers one day, and he said, you're wearing trousers? And <laughs> no, so that, no, honestly, I mean, I, I know exactly where, you know, that story really hit a bell as well. So thankfully, having overcome these issues and you got into your practice, I mentioned that at the beginning, you started out in Bradford in West Yorkshire, and then you then um, set up in Birmingham. So, and I also mentioned that you also conduct mediations. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about sort of those areas of practice and, and how you came to get into those areas of practice, and what is it about those areas of practice that have always stimulated you? Well, litigation was always where I thought I was going to be when I was doing my articles. And that was actually with a, a West End firm in, in London. Uh, they're called Floodgates now. Back then oh, yes. they were called Floodgate Fielder, but they're called That's Floodgates right. now. And I remember when I was uh, doing my articles with them and I, I had a stint where I was doing litigation. I was in the litigation department. And I used to go down to court regularly dealing with you know summonses before the master's down at the Royal Courts of Justice. And I just really, really enjoyed that kind of court atmosphere. And I knew that it was what I wanted to do. It was, it was just, 
I mean, it's going to sound funny, but I think when you're when you're a, when you're a trainee, you almost think being a proper lawyer is going to court. And I shouldn't say that because it's absolutely not not true at all, you know. But I, I think that actually. You know, you know, as a, as a, I mean, when I was um, when I was doing my 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 law degree, I remember uh, we used to sit and watch. I don't know if you remember this, Gautam, but there used to be a um, an American series that used to come on television, LA Law, which we I remember. To- yeah, absolutely. <laughs> And we loved it. We loved it. You know, you'd have all these lawyers going into court and standing up and shouting, objection, your honour, and it was all very exciting. And, of course, when you qualify, you realise that real life is nothing like that. You know, there's a lot of paperwork. There's a lot of admin. There's a lot of real hard graft that goes into everything before you get anywhere near a courtroom. But um, I enjoyed that client interaction I enjoyed going to court I enjoyed the challenge of court hearings and and trying to persuade judge of your perspective and just just that you know just really enjoy doing that and that's where I've, I've pretty much stayed most of my career mediation I think was a natural progression because I qualified as a mediator back in 2005 and around that time mediation was a real kind of up and coming concept it wasn't particularly prevalent but but a lot of people were talking about it and I felt that was it it, it fitted very nicely with litigation you know it was a different way of resolving disputes and I really really enjoyed being a mediator you you get to hear parties stories and you get to hear the things that don't always come out in a in a witness statement or in a courtroom and, you know, you are there to try and help them resolve their disputes. And I think essentially that's what a litigator enjoys doing. You know, a litigator likes to help somebody work out and sort out what their problems are. And that essentially was what drove me. I mean, over the course of my career, I've done, I've done litigation. I've also done family law, which, again, court work, really, really interesting. I've done contentious probate. And it... it I've evolved into now a lot of my work is with professional regulation, as you mentioned, and I chair for a number of professional regulators. And again, it's this, it's a similar theme. It's not lit- it is litigation because you're in you're in courtrooms, you're dealing with conduct issues, you're hearing evidence, but it's what I enjoy doing, and um, I've, I've kind of stayed with it most of my career. Fabulous, thank you. And just moving slightly, I mean, I'll return to issues about diversity a bit later on because, you know, those are obviously things we touched on and which I'd like to, us to follow up on. I want to maybe at this point just go back to, I, I mentioned that next month is going to be a really big deal because you're going to become the president of the Law Society. And uh, we all look forward to that immensely, Lubna. But tell us a little bit about how you first came to your roles in the leadership of this listers profession sort of what led you to want to serve in those sorts of capacities was someone encouraging of you to do it did you feel i wanted to make a difference in that respect it'd be really good to hear your story on that please throughout my kind of legal career gautam i've always been quite active with sort of I suppose what you would call extracurricular <laughs> groups. When I was doing my articles, I was actively involved at that time with, I think they were called the Trainee Solicitors Group at that time. And now they are the Junior Lawyers Network. So I was involved with them very, very early on. 
And then when I qualified, I got involved with my local law society. Um, I was involved with personal injury groups like the, they were called the Motor Accident Solicitor Society, APIL Association of Personal Injury Lawyers. I was involved with them. And I, when I set up my own practice, I became involved with the sole practitioners group as well. And I chaired that group for a year. And it was kind of a natural progression that I then got involved with the Law Society Council. And once I got involved with the council, I did a lot of work with a number of committees, the Law Society committees. I got involved with the Conduct Committee. I was chairing the Membership and Communications Committee. I'd sat on the Membership Board. I I sit on the Law Society Board now. So I've done a lot of work to lead up to where I am now. And I think I've just always had that interest in doing something outside of my nine to five. And I would really, really encourage others who don't do it to really consider doing it. I mean, I know sometimes there are issues around family commitments and being able to give it the time that you need, or even just work commitments. You know, some people work long, long hours, and it's very, very difficult to fit other things in. But I think it's really important for your personal development to also get involved with other things outside of where you're working. You see new perspectives, you make new friends, you network with different people. And often, as a result of getting involved with those groups, other opportunities will open up to you that you won't get when you're just doing your normal, regular job. So I think, I mean, that that's what I would say. Open your horizons and try to get involved with, with a diverse range of groups and have other activities, which may be kind of legal related, but not necessarily directly connected to your work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, thank you. And, you know, tell us, because you've just, you're coming to almost the end of, your year as the vice president of the Law Society before you take up your role as president. It'd be interesting to know some of the key roles you've undertaken as vice president in the last year. And if you could, uh, to the extent you can, of course, tell us a little bit about some of your key aims and objectives when you become the president of the Law Society. Yeah, sure. So the role of the vice president is... I mean, you're an ambassador for the profession, but you're you're stepping in for the president when the president is not available because the president's diary is is, is absolutely chocker. And much as um, you know, they they'd like to be everywhere at once, it's not it's not practical. <laughs> so often, I I have stepped in as vice president to deal with a, a number of things, and quite often, I in in fact, I particularly have had requests that have come directly to me because people have asked for me to be involved with a project or an event. So I've done a lot of speaking engagements. I attend local law society meetings. I attend meetings with other members where I update them on the work that the law society is doing on their behalf. I listen to them. I bring issues back into the law society so that we can act on on concerns that members are raising with us. I've attended meetings with various stakeholders and it's been a very, very busy year, actually. Even as even as vice president, it's been an incredibly busy year because there is always something that needs to be done. And, and yet it's a bit like this, doing podcasts like this, talking to people through podcasts, yeah. doing webinars, 
I've spoken at international webinars as well as national webinars. And, you know, just generally, my role is to promote our members, support our members and represent our members. And that's what, what I've been doing. In terms of when I become president, my my presidential plan will be launched when I take office, which is on the 12th of October. So there'll be a lot more detail around what my plans will be for the next 12 months on that date. Um, I can say that access to justice is, is a huge issue, as it, as it always has been for the Law Society for many, 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 many years. Um, you will be aware that there are huge areas of the country now where legal aid is not available, the courts are closing down, we've got backlogs, we've got criminal legal aid firms leaving the profession because they can't afford to carry on working. There are other issues around, you know, the reputation of solicitors. There's a lot of work that needs to be done on that because, you know, we have taken a bit of a battering over recent months where, you know, there have been political issues and solicitors have been targeted to some extent, quite unfairly. Um, and I'll also be doing work around diversity. I couldn't not do diversity. I'm going to be the first Asian. I'm going to be the first Muslim. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm going to be the seventh woman. The Law Society has been around almost 200 years. It was established in 1825. So we've kind of made a lot of progress in those 200 years. We're, we're getting to a place where I never dreamed we would be, you know, where we've got you know, an, an Asian woman heading the or leading the profession, I should say. And one of the issues that I will be looking at is the issue of diversity at senior partnership level within firms. We've got good levels of diversity coming into the profession now, but we're not seeing that progress to the senior levels of the profession. And equally, within the judiciary, we're not seeing the diversity that we would like to see at more senior levels of the judiciary. So I really want to see what we can do to try and move that dial and progress that agenda further. Fabulous. And I can tell you, Lubna, you'll have many, many people, including me, at the very front of the queue to assist you, encourage you, to do anything we can to support you in all your objectives. That's Um, absolutely fantastic, Gautam, because honestly, we can only achieve when we all work together. And it it is about teamwork. You know, one person cannot bring around the changes that we need to see. It has to be a collective effort right across the profession, across the judiciary. You know, we all need to work together to try and find the ways of breaking down whatever barriers are Mm -hmm. there. You know, we can only do that together. So thank you. I really appreciate that. And I hope many of your listeners will feel the same as well. Oh, I I know they will. And, uh, you know, we... We're all, we're all going to be there cheering for you. And, you know, on that thing, I mean, I'm going to be just going to focus on one thing because, you know, I know we've spoken about a number of issues about diversity and the importance of diversity and inclusion and equality. To me, and, and I, it's just iconic to me that you're going to be the first Muslim, the first female Muslim leader of the solicitor's profession as president. And that really speaks a lot. And, uh, you know, it has a big impact. I know that you're a very humble person by all estimation. You are a very humble person. But what does it mean to you, if you wouldn't mind being a little bit indulgent 
to my question to express what you hope the impact will be to law students, trainees, young associates, young partners, senior partners of an ethnic background, particularly a South Asian heritage background, to see you achieve the role of president of Law Society? What can I say? No pressure. <laughs> I, I mean, obviously, I have spoken to many, many people and many people have spoken to me already during the course of the period that I've been deputy vice president and vice president. And the overarching theme that keeps coming across is representation matters. If I can see it, I can be it. And I mean, I couldn't see it and I didn't actually think I could be it. But with the support of my colleagues, I have managed to get to where I am. And I think that says a lot about our profession generally. You know, our, our profession wants to see change and they are encouraging change. And I think that's a fantastic thing. You know, I am a solicitor first. I've been a solicitor for 30 years. I've worked really, really hard over those 30 years. And I really hope that I'm going to be a role model, not only for South Asian solicitors, but for all solicitors. It's great that I'm, I'm in this role and I'm, I hope I am inspiring others. I hope they do look at me and think, actually, we can get on in this profession. We can achieve in this profession as long as you've got the ability, as long as you've got the skills and as long as you know, you do have to work hard. I can't say it's just landed in my lap. I've worked incredibly hard to get to where I am. But, you know, it, other people, if they can see that and if I can help just some of those to think more positively about their future and about their future career prospects. I've done something positive. And, and you know, obviously, I'll try and do much, much more than that when I, when, you know, when I get into the, in, in, into my, into the position of president in October. I, I will be working incredibly hard to be a good president for all of our profession, whatever their background whatever their concerns, whatever their issues. And, you know, the fact that I'm an Asian woman, I hope, will tell everybody that it doesn't matter what your background is. You can do a good job, whoever you are, wherever you're from. You know, you need to be given those opportunities and you need to be given that uh, chance to show that you can achieve. That's, that's such a wonderful way to... Uh, to uh, it's just a wonder. I, I just think that's, that's, just, that's just a wonderful way to look at it. I, I just want to tell you that I think... I, you know, I'm going to move to the sort of more now the sort of the last bit of the podcast because I honestly can't think how I could even top that or ask you a supplemental. You absolutely nailed every single aspect of that one. <laughs> and just so our listeners know, all of this is unscripted. So this discussion with Lubna is completely unscripted, as all good podcasts, I believe, should be. So, uh, no, that was wonderful. Thank you very much, Lubna. So let me now move into... We always end looking at these podcasts with a more sort of lighthearted section, which is very popular, I must say, with our listeners, because it gives a bit of a window into the lives of the podcast guests. And previous podcast guests have included former Supreme Court judges from this country, from other countries, judges and senior practitioners from all sorts of countries. And I also find it personally very interesting. So I'm going to ask you three things, looking to round off this podcast. 
So let's start with music. What's your favourite sort of music? Have you got any favourite bands or singers or any favourite albums that you particularly enjoy putting on? I'm not sure whether I should admit this. I should admit this actually, Gareth. I mean, oh, go on, on, go on. Spot, but I'm going to tell you that I'm a huge George Michael fan. Oh, me too. I love George Michael. <laughs> always have been. Always from the will days. be. Yeah. Every single yeah, from the one days <laughs> right through. You know, George Michael all the way, and I mean, generally eighties. I mean, I yeah, you know, I love the eighties because that was when I was, you know, when I was. A lot younger, and um, <laughs> you associate it with with your younger younger days. And um, when you listen to it, you feel like you're back in your twenties again. So, but no, George Michael would be top of the list for my favourite music. I love it. He's one of my absolute favourites. I mean, I've got all I've got so much of his stuff. He was one of the best singer songwriters of all time. Absolutely. And he also produced a lot of his own music. He played some instruments too. Just a wonderfully talented man, taken far too soon. I mean, is is there one particular George Michael or Wham song that you particularly love? Honestly, I... It's hard to choose. So <laughs> many, so many. I mean, I think you just hit the nail on the head. I, I, I just felt he was an incredible songwriter. And he just mm. he talked to your heart. He talks to your yeah. heart. You listen to him. I mean, obviously, you've got the, the fluffy stuff, which I love as well. You know, the... Yeah. You know the, the the kind of the dance stuff, which is great, but a lot of his very serious music was just oh, yeah. so so poignant, and uh, I just love listening to the lyrics. It's um, it's it's so true, and I'm going to take an indulgence here for for a few, for a few seconds. I recently played "Make It Big," the first album, and there was one song on there called "Nothing Looks the Same in the Light," yeah, which I hadn't heard for a long time, and. It dawned on me as I was playing it and reading the lyrics off the record that he wrote that, George Marker wrote that when he was 18 years old. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you just think, wow, when I was 18, I could barely write my own name. And uh, <laughs> he's writing songs that profound. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. Well, that's another thing you and I have in common. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> we'll so, save that for another discussion. I'm, oh, we will. We, we will probably talk about that for another hour. Actually, yeah, yeah. I know we could. Yeah. I know we could yeah. definitely. Yeah. So, then tell us a little bit about your favorite films. Do you have any favorite films? I, I mean, I love watching movies. It's, it's mm -hmm. kind of my relaxed time, you know. And, and, and I like, I like world cinema. I like watching world cinema. And um, there's one film in particular. I, I don't know if you know it. It's called. It's very. It's quite an old film now. It's not a, not a new film. Called Cinema Paradiso. Oh yeah, beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Black that, and white. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, yeah. That that would be towards the top of my list. I, I can't remember. I don't think it is all black and white. Some of it's oh, black it? and white. I, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But anyway, mm. that that is just a beautiful, beautiful mm. film. Beautiful film, and. It is coming back to the nostalgia. We love a bit of nostalgia. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I, yeah, I think that will probably be somewhere near the top of my list. Although I do like things like Gladiator as well. You know, that's a great yeah. movie because nice big epic film. There's yeah. so many, so many. It's difficult to choose. I know. It is. It is very tough. No, no. Well, thank you for sharing that. And then, and then the last thing, this is my last question, I promise you. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to cross-examine you any further, Lubna. Um, but... Uh, now with travel, now I know we, thankfully uh, we're now all coming out of this dreadful pandemic that we've all been subject to and, and things are getting back to a lot more normality. Have you got any favourite places you just love travelling to or that you've not travelled to for a bit and you look forward to going to again soon? 
I mean, I think it depends on what what your mood is. You know, if you want to go to the beach, you can't beat the Maldives. It's simple. Mm-hmm. You know, Maldives is just amazing. And that's somewhere I'd love to go back to. But in terms of city, New York, it's got to be New York. Can't can't beat the buzz of New York. I think it's because it's very similar to London, actually. Yeah, yeah. You know, and and it, it, you know, you, there's just so much to do, so much variety, so much vibrancy, so much diversity, so much to experience. Um, so yeah, I'd probably say New York would be a place I'd love to go back to. Fabulous. Well, Lubna, thank you very very much for being such a wonderful podcast guest. It's been an absolute privilege to speak to you. I've been wanting to have a podcast discussion with you for a long, long time, and I'm incredibly grateful that you've allowed me to do that. And I know that our listeners, of whom there'll be many of this podcast, will absolutely love hearing what you've had to say. I found it inspirational, uplifting, enjoyable, funny, (laughs) all sorts of things, and on all levels. But it's just been wonderful. So thank you very, very much. And last and definitely not least, I wish you all the very best for a very successful and impactful year as a president of the Law Society starting on the 12th of October 2022. So thank you very much indeed, Lubna. Thank you. Thank you ever so much for asking me. And it's been lovely chatting to you. Thank you. Arbitral Insights is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's global international arbitration practice, email arbitralinsights at reedsmith.com. To learn about the Reed Smith Arbitration Pricing Calculator, a first-of-its-kind mobile app that forecasts the cost of arbitration around the world, search Arbitration Pricing Calculator on reedsmith.com or download for free through the Apple and Google Play app stores. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, ReadSmith.com, and our social media accounts at ReadSmith LLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.